If you would, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. I've entitled the sermon, A Forever Priest. A Forever Priest. Last week we began to explore the, the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus. Right For those of us who are discouraged and wavering like those initial readers there in the book of Hebrews who were struggling, debating whether they should give up and call it quits on following Jesus because they were undergoing persecution and opposition all for the name. And the writer writes to remind them that Jesus is better. Where else are you going to go who has the words of eternal life? Like Peter says there in John chapter 6. Right? When Jesus says those hard things, some turned away and left Jesus. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, are you going to leave also? And Peter said, well, where am I going to go? Right? Where, where am I going to go? You know, in each and every day, that reality, existential, becomes more real. Where are you going to go? Like, I'm waiting for someone to tell me that. So if you have an answer to that, you see me after church. And tell me where else can you go than to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Well, we have this great, sympathetic, and sinless high priest, we're told, who's passed through the heavens. Now, you hear that and you say, pass through. Well, I hope he'd stop. No, he did stop. That's just a a way of saying he, he didn't go into the copy that Aaron went in and the Levitical priesthood went in. He didn't paint with numbers. He painted with his own blood. He didn't give it symbolically or typologically or foreshadowing it. No, God became a man. God took to himself our humanity that he might be a great high priest, a sympathetic high priest, a sinless high priest that we might find mercy in him. Well, today we're going to look at chapter 5 and see how Jesus of Nazareth far exceeds and supersedes the Aaronic priesthood, that priesthood in the Old Covenant that Mr. Jones read about there in Exodus 28 and the calling of the sons of Aaron to be set apart for the priesthood. That Christ has been pointed to a better and an eternal priesthood built on better promises, secured with better blood, Right? The blood of the Lamb of God. So let's look now to chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We've just been exhorted to come to our high priest in our time of need, no matter when that is, to find mercy and grace to enable us to continue to persevere in him who loved us and gave himself for us. So let's pick up now in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself or for himself, 
but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So, also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him in Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers. It's already dying in the spring. We see it, right? I noticed how brown it was, right? It withers. It's a constant reminder that we're like grass. The flowers, they they will die too. Those pretty blooms will die and fall from the tree. We too will die. But you know what will not die? The Word of God. The most precious thing you hold in your hand right now. The Word of God. That will never die. Never changes. Just like Himself. God Himself. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we would come and ask... You come in the power of your spirit. Your people are hungry. Lord, and I have nothing. You are the meal. You are our bread. I pray I would decrease. Christ would increase. And come in your spirit and give us discernment and illumination to understand this word that you have breathed out through your apostles and prophets. That we, at the end of this day, might make much of you. The one in whom there is fullness of joy. The one at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. The one in whom is living water that our thirst might be quenched. O bread of heaven, bless your word. For your own namesake we pray. Amen. This morning we get a sense here in Hebrews chapter 5 of what Christ's earthly ministry looked like. In verse 7 we're told, in the days of his flesh, that is in the days of his earthly life, his incarnation, Jesus the man offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now Christ's whole ministry was was marked by anguish. It was marked by anguish, it was marked by travail, it was marked by angst, right? Is he who was full of the Spirit without measure 
walk the earth. You can only imagine how he, he grieved and lamented of all the brokenness and all the consequences of sin. As he whose eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity looked out upon the masses and saw all the effects of sin. It weighed heavenly, no doubt, on him. But why such grief? Why such sorrow? Well, it has to do with, with him being made like us. You see, he had to come in solidarity as the, the better Adam, the, the truer Adam, that he might redeem his bride. He, he might wash her and give her garments that are holy and righteous and clothe her that she might be his. And he did this through his high priestly ministry. And that's why he entered into our anguish, our angst, our travail, as it were. It had to do with his role as high priest. But you ask, uh, how can Jesus of Nazareth, of the tribe of Judah, serve as high priest? How is this possible? He's not of the line of Levi. And we know only Levi's line was called to serve as priest. So, so how is Jesus of another tribe, that is the tribe of Judah, going to serve as high priest? That's the dilemma, is it not? That's the, the angst, the question. And how is he qualified to serve in this role as high priest? Well, the text before us this morning, the author compares and he contrasts the Aaronic priesthood with that of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He does, if you will, he, he juxtaposes the Aaronic priesthood with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ as of another order, a different order, not of Levi, but of the order of this strange fellow called Melchizedek. What's going on here? Well, there are three ways that he contrasts this priesthood of Aaron with the priesthood of Jesus. They're, they're similar, and yet they're distinct. They're, there's continuity, Mr. Hutton, and there's discontinuity. <laughs> That's how it often works. Hermeneutically, when we read the Bible, when we read the shadows of the Old Covenant, we need to look for continuity, but realize there's discontinuity. There's, there's fulfillment. There's, there's, there's more an expansive revelation of the Son of God. It's no longer in shadows. It's the difference between looking at a shadow and, and looking at the noonday sun. You see, when you open the canon of those 27 New Testament books, we're reminded that God in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. So everything has to be viewed through the person and work of the Son. Right? He, he's the, the eyeglasses we put on to understand all that God has revealed in those 39 Old Testament books. If I want to understand Habakkuk, I've got to put on the Gospel of Mark. Zephaniah, I must go to John, you see. I must understand all that's preceded Jesus through the work and person of Jesus. So this morning, let's look at this comparison and contrast, the, this juxtaposition between the Aaronic priesthood and the priesthood of Christ under these three points. The high priest is appointed by God. He's appointed by God. He just doesn't do it willy-nilly, right? 
Secondly, the high priest must be able to deal gently with sinners. Gently, tenderly with sinners. And then thirdly, the high priest acts on behalf of those he represents before God, just like a defense attorney, right? You go out and you put a retainer on a defense attorney so he can represent you, so he can be an advocate for you and defend you and your cause and your name. So he must be appointed. He must be able to deal gently, and he he must be able to act on behalf of those he represents. So first, the high priests were appointed by God. Look at verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. You see, every high priest is chosen. They're appointed. Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God. So they're chosen. They're appointed and they're called by God. Saints, this is the way God set up the office of high priest under the old covenant. You might remember what Mr. Jones read from Exodus 28, verse 1. Notice what the Lord says to Moses. Moses, bring Aaron and his sons near to me to serve as what? To serve as priest, as those who are able to go between myself and my people. Aaron did not seek this office himself. Aaron, if you know anything about your Bibles, certainly didn't deserve it. He wasn't voted into office. It wasn't a democratic election. No, Aaron was called. He was called to this office. That reminds me, that's why I speak about this, having been called, having been appointed, having been chosen to office. Beware of the danger of taking to yourself calling to office in the church. (laughs) Now, I know it's, it's noble and right for a young man to aspire to such. That is the office of elder. Paul tells us as much there in Timothy. But remember what happened to the, to the sons of Korah? Do you remember the sons of Korah? That strange story there in Numbers 16. Korah said to Moses and Aaron, right, they had a lot of bravado. They were full of himself this morning when they woke up, when they said this to Moses. Listen to what they said. All in the congregation are holy. Moses and Aaron, why do you exalt yourselves above the people? What hubris. What pride. You know what Moses does immediately after that? He falls on his face. Why? Because he knows he stands in the presence of arrogance and hubris. He's broken. Not by his own sin, but by the sin he sees manifested before him. He calls and tells the sons of Korah and Korah himself. It is not against us you are rebelling, but against the Lord. The long story short is we're told that later in the chapter, you know what happens? You know what the earth does? Earth does this. It opens. And you know who's standing on the earth underneath it which opens? The sons of Korah. All of his little ones. His whole family. His whole household. 
is swallowed by the earth. It, it opens and, and swallows. It does just like that. It opens, they fall in, and then it closes. The hubris, the pride of assuming office for oneself. If you've not been called, you've not been chosen, you've not been appointed. So beware. New Testament example, you have Acts 8. You have Simon the magician. Remember him? He's the dude who sees the power of God through Peter. And he says, you know what? I want some of that. I want some of that action. He seeks to procure it through monetary means. It didn't go well for him either. This is the origin of uh, the heretical teaching called simony. You remember this? This is where you... In the Reformation, the Middle Ages, they were selling church office. Right? Because it was a noble thing. Mr. Fender wonderfully reminded us about what it was before modernism, right? It was noble to serve in the church. It was recognized. It was socially acceptable. There was capital that one could garner by serving in the church. You could buy ecclesiastical office. Saints, the, the office of high priest. We're reminded it's an appointed office, like the office of elder and deacon in the church. The office of high priest is, is not self-appointed, but chosen and called of God. Likewise, if, if you look down at verses 5 and 6, we, we have the juxtaposition now. The calling of Aaron to the high priest with that of Jesus himself. He, he himself was appointed to the office of high priest. So also, notice what the writer says, the preacher says there, he says to us, the Spirit is speaking right now to us. He is spoken, but he's speaking. Isn't that wonderful? So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was what? Appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 5 here is from Psalm 2-7. It's already been quoted in chapter 1, verse 5, where, where Jesus, we're told, is superior to the angels, right? As God's royal son, as Messiah, as king. He also quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, that Christ has been appointed to this priesthood that's in the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is this guy whose name we have a hard, night, hard time pronouncing? And if I keep pronouncing it, I'm going to make a mistake. But who is this guy? Who is Melchizedek? Why is Jesus a priest after his order? What other priests have come from Melchizedek in the Old Covenant? Anybody here? Raise your hand if you know of any. I don't know of any. Who is this mysterious figure? Well, actually, we, we don't know very much about him. It's, it's very limited what has been revealed. He only appears twice in the Old Testament in Genesis 14. Go home today and read it. Psalm 110 as well. It seems like he appears, and just as quickly as he appears, he disappears. <laughs> he does this little cameo thing there in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we have the story, let me remind you, of some kings of some kings who raid Sodom and they abduct and kidnap Abraham's nephew Lot. Abraham hears about this. 
he musters together 318 men. I love that. I love the specificity. I love how granular the word of God gets. How many men did he muster? 318. That's how many. And they go out and he rescues Lot and rescues Lot's family. And we're told there that as Abraham is returning home, he's met by this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Genesis IDs him as a king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. We're told that he blesses Abraham. The greater blesses the lesser, right? That's how this works, typically. And Abraham responds to this blessing that Melchizedek has given him. Now, who is Abraham? Oh, he's pretty important, isn't he? He's the patriarch of patriarchs with a capital P. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he has. The point here in Hebrews 5 is that Melchizedek is a priest king. He's a king who also serves as a priest of the Most High God. In the same way, our Lord Jesus Christ is the Son, begotten of the Father, right? Not made, but gotten eternally generated from the Father, who became Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Today I have begotten you. Today you fulfilled all that I set forth for you to do, son. I am so pleased with you, my son. You see. But not only is he a royal son, a royal king, he's also a priest. And Jesus, like Melchizedek, was not of the line of Aaron. And yet he was appointed by God to serve as priest. He's a priest forever. He has no genealogy. And there's nothing recorded about his beginning nor his end of days. But of it likewise, priest, rather Christ also is a priest. He's not of the line of Aaron. But as God's royal son, Messiah, he's been appointed to this eternal priesthood. Appointed in his ascension to the throne. You see, as he ascends, he takes captive, right? And spreads out gifts to men. And now he sits on the throne in this new priesthood of a new order, no longer of the, the typological order of Aaron, but now in the order of Melchizedek. You see, unlike Aaron's priesthood, Jesus' intercession now is of eternal value. It's of greater value. It's complete and it's sufficient, unlike the order of Aaron, right? In the Old Covenant, what happened to the priest after about 80 years? He died, right? Now another priest would have to rise up. And every year we're told that the blood of bulls and goats would have to be repeatedly offered. But now that Christ has been installed, he's been chosen, he's been called to serve in this eternal priesthood, that's forever. Now you think about that, church. You have a priest in heaven who ever lives to make intercession for you. That his ministry is ongoing. Once for all at the cross and resurrection. Upon his resurrection, ascending and now intercedes for you. 
Those five bleeding wounds he pleads. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. You see. This is what Jesus is doing. So why would you want to to turn from this eternal priesthood to the lesser priesthood of Judaism, to the lesser priesthood of Aaron? Why would you return to the blood of bulls and goats when God's appointed high priest ever lives to make intercession for you? Let me encourage you with this, beloved. As your high priest, as the one who has secured this great salvation for you, that your righteousness at this very moment is at God's right hand. Let that just sit and marinate in your brain. Your very righteousness, your very acceptance with God sits at the Father's right hand. He sits there pleading for you, interceding for you. You'll never be more righteous even in 10 billion years from now than you are at this very moment by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now you will grow in your sanctification, but you will never be more justified than you are right now. All because God's appointed Son has been chosen, appointed, and called to serve as your eternal priest. Now, that should get your feet to moving and your heart to singing. Right? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. What a Savior. He ever lives to intercede for me. So the first qualification, he must be appointed. Secondly, the high priest must be able to deal gently with sinners. Right? He's not standoffish. He's not stoical. Right? He's sympathetic. Here in chapter 5, the author reminds us that in the Old Covenant, the Aaronic priest we're told in verse 2, notice what the Aaronic priests could do. They could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Because the old covenant priests were like all fallen ministers and elders in the church of God. Verse 2, they're beset with various weaknesses. Because of this, that is their own weakness and their own sinfulness, they're obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. You see, beloved, there's a solidarity between the Aaronic priests and the sinner, right? Both are fallen sinners. The high priest and those he represented knew what it was like to fall into sin. They could relate. I'm one of you. I'm cut from the same cloth. Who am I to boast? Except for the grace of God, there go I, right? I share your weakness, I share your waywardness. I share your doubts. Now I stand in this pulpit and I preach, hopefully, in the power of the Holy Spirit with clarity and courage. But I share in all the infirmities, all the weaknesses that you have, all the struggles that you have to remain pure, young men, in your thoughts. I struggle just as you struggle. I can identify with those weaknesses. The high priest and those he represented knew what it was like to fall into sin. And not only that both the high priest and the people were keenly aware of the damage and destruction of sin, right? Both knew the consequences of sin. Both knew the pain 
the chaos, the whirlwind one reaps, right? We, we had a wonderful, lovely marriage ceremony yesterday. Love marriages. Love the ceremonies. I, I just love the sublime beauty in the ceremony. When the door opens and the bride comes down the aisle, there, that is a special moment. It's just a moment, just kind of like a, like a breaking in of transcendence, like pow, like bam. There's a God in heaven, and he's beautiful, and he's giving good gifts to men. He's given biblical human sexuality, female, male, in their glory. We have just a glimpse of it. That's a slither radiating down from heaven. So we look through it to the one in whom it originates. And we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Doesn't beauty do that to you? Doesn't beauty capture your heart and woo you in? Oh, can you imagine how beautiful God is? Can you imagine, church, his beauty, his glory? Are you asleep? Oh, sinner, wake up. Wake up and see the glory of God. You see, he's beautiful. He's good. He's holy. And he dwells in the beauty of holiness. I can't wait to see him. Do you long to see him? Do you see the beauty in creation? Do you look through it to him in whom it originates? Lewis talks about this ad nauseum in his literature. Oh, to look through beauty, to see the one that is a fountain of all beauty, of all glory, of all majesty, of all excellence, of all purity and splendor, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, to see. Oh, to have eyes to see. Thank you, Jesus. You've given me eyes to see it. Where else will I go? Where else can I go? He's captured my heart. He's wooed me as a faithful lover. That's what he does. As a father who loves his children. But not only were the high priest and the people aware of the damage and destruction of sin, they knew the chaos, right? They, they saw the chaos that sin brings, right? And just conversely, just as beautiful as that ceremony was, how destructive and how, how vile is it when a marriage is broken? When cancer begins to infest it and it metastasizes and the beauty's gone, the music's no longer heard. And not only the, the carnage and the fallout from what happens to those in the immediate context, but everyone else around them. That's what sin does. The priests knew this. The officers know this. We all know the effects of sin, our own sin in our own lives, the lives of others, the, the regrets we have, the sorrows we have. Yes, we, we can be forgiven if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I give you that promise today in the, the full assurance that God will forgive your sins. But oftentimes, the, the sins that we participate in and we partake of, they have catastrophic effects, and the consequences are not easily forgotten. And often remain. Faithful officers in the church know this weakness. That's why they're able to come alongside the church. I'm so grateful for my elders. 
right? They're not idealists. I love that about my elders. I can remember telling my elder, one elder particularly, about my son who is not walking with Christ. And being ashamed of it, right? Being ashamed of it. And that elder hearing me because he knew me. He's able to deal gently with me because he himself is beset with weakness. He himself knows what it's like to be wayward. He knows the love of a father for a child. He knew. He understand. He was able to draw near. And I am forever, ever grateful to that man. They share. They shared. They share in our same weakness. Last week in chapter 4, we saw that Christ can sympathize with us because he was tempted with sin but never succumbed to it. He, he didn't sin. He did not sin. And here in chapter 5, the the preacher wants us to see in verses 7 to 8, there's another reason Christ can sympathize with us. Notice what it says there in in 7 and 8. You wouldn't believe it if it wasn't revealed in the Word of God. You wouldn't believe it if I told you this. You say, Pastor, look, you're a heretic. Look at it. Look at the Word of God. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, that is, in the days of his earthly ministry, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, because of his piety. What is the author referring to? What event? I think particularly he's referring to to that event in Gethsemane. You remember there? When the Son of God is bearing the weight of the world and he knows he's going to the cross. And he's there in the garden. He's, he's asked his disciples to, to come near and tarry with him to pray at least for one hour. But they're unable because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. We're so weak. We're so prone to leave God. We can't even stay with God. In the darkest hour of human history, We're told by Luke that Jesus is praying to his father, and he says, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Luke tells us, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood. And we're told in verse 7 that he was heard because of his reverence. But how? How was he heard? How? Didn't he die? Was he delivered from the cup? Did the Father spare the Son the cup of wrath that you and I deserve? Beloved, he was not saved from death, but he was saved out of death through his resurrection on Sunday morning, on that first Easter. You see, the one who was able to save him and to save his body from decay delivered him in the resurrection, giving him the name now above every name, 
beginning in him a new humanity, a, a new race of mankind called Christians. In another Adam, a new creation has dawned in this one raised from the dead. You see, saints, the father heard the cries of his son because of his reverence. He entrusted himself to his father's perfect will to complete the mission the father had given him. And Jesus' mission was the cup. The son drank the cup to the bitter end for the joy that was set before him. And what was this joy that was set before him? The joy that was set before him. Let's get really specific. Let's do what he does. Let's get granular. Was Jim and Mary and Susan and Al and Bill and Rick and Dennis and Catherine and Anna and Jimmy and Susan. You see, that was the joy. That was the joy that he might secure your salvation. That he might fulfill the mission the Father had given the Son before all time began. This is what God has done. Oh, it is marvelous in our eyes, is it not? With the psalmist we say, this God who's done such great things for me. And after completing the mission, the Father vindicated the Son, raising Him from the dead. And we're incredibly told there in verse 8, look there in verse 8, although He was a Son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. This does not mean that Jesus was not obedient before, but rather the point here about Jesus learning obedience, you need to write this down because you understand, I want you to understand the full humanity of the Son of God taking on our nature. The point is Jesus learned exactly what obedience to God entails. You see, in his humanity as high priest, he learned the struggle to obey. He was without sin, yes. But never forget, he was and is fully human. He's not less. He, he's not a Marvel superhero. He's fully man. And you know what's so interesting? The early church struggled with that doctrine. We're so apt to think, well, they struggled with the deity of Christ. No, 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 no. The struggle of the early church was a struggle in a heresy called docetism, right? It's docetic. He, he only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. He, he never had to learn anything. He never suffered anything. He, he never knew what betrayal truly was because he wasn't human. That's what we were told. But here the writer says, oh, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. The Son of God learned obedience. He learned what it meant to obey God when it's difficult. You see, as Luke reminds us in his gospel early on, Jesus grew in his humanity, right? He grew in wisdom and favor with God. He developed. He was a child, a baby, an infant, to a young man, 
to a fully grown man. He grew in his understanding. His knowledge as a human grew because he's fully human. We need to understand that. We need to take advantage of that. We need to let that saturate our brains. We need to let that marinate in our hearts to understand that our high priest fully gets us. He can relate to us. He's one of us. You see, he learned the difficulty of obeying. He learned the struggles of his people. He learned how to obey when obeying is hard. You see, we all struggle, don't we? Right? We know Romans 7. We know it experientially. And not only do I know what it says on the page, but I know that those things that I want to do are the very things I don't do. And those things that I don't want to do are the very things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God. Right? And then he proceeds, right? Therefore now there's no condemnation. So child of God, take heart. You see, we all know this. We know the struggle of Galatians 5, where the, where the flesh... And the spirit are, are battling all the time, right? We're always in this battle as Christians. We're always struggling. But we're more than conquerors also in Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Right? We all know the temptations, the desires, they overtake us in this life. We struggle to obey. The, the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus knows. He, he understands he knows what it is to obey when it's hard. You see, he also learned that hardship often comes from obedience. Now think about that. Hardship doesn't just come from disobedience. Hardship, now kids, look at me. Hardship following Jesus. Listen now, I'm serious. Following Jesus will oftentimes lead to hardship. It is a lonely path to follow Jesus often in life. What does he say? He who would save his life will what? Lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. And then he calls us to take up something. What does he call us to take up? Sofa cursions? Is that what it says in the Greek? No, he says, take up your cross and follow me. For what does it profit a man, woman, young adolescent girl, old man, middle-aged white guy, to profit the whole world, to gain it all and lose his own soul? Jesus knows. I'm telling you, church, you let the doctrine of the humanity of the Son of God bless you this day. That your Savior knows. Your sins are many, as the hymn writer says, but his mercy is more. His mercy is more. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. You see, obedience to God is not always appreciated by an unbelieving world. Timothy, Paul writes, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Often suffering will come not because you disobey, but because you obey. Jesus says this, John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. 
Jesus was mocked, he was scorned, he was rejected, he was ridiculed and ultimately crucified. You see, church, following Christ faithfully often leads to hardship. Don't be surprised. But know this, Jesus, your forever high priest, he knows the struggle. He understands. And maybe your obedience this week to Jesus Christ might mean being thought less of by your friends who aren't really friends. Maybe you're thought less of in the office this week because you, told, you tell people tomorrow morning, you know, I went to church yesterday, I had a great time, I had a wonderful time. It was searching, met with God, His Word, bread and wine. Oh, let me tell you where this starving sinner found bread. Can I share it with you? With gentleness and respect, being ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. And they might scorn you. They might reject you. You know what it might mean? It might mean they actually fire you. They fire you. All because you follow the name. You follow the one of the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed are you on that day. You call me that afternoon and we'll sing together. Not because you are a derelict. And irresponsible, but if they fire you for the name, you call me, and I'll be there. I'll come alongside, and I'll deal gently with you. Because I am a sinner, and I understand what it's like to sin. I understand what it's like to want to give up and leave the ministry. I understand. But you know what's so beautiful about Jesus? Listen, church. He understands not because he sinned. He understands because vicariously he willingly chose to stand where you stand, to sit where you sit. He didn't have to. It was the love of God that drove the Son of God to the cross. He loved you. You were without hope. You were loving self, promoting self, relishing in self, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but God saw you. You were hell-deserving. You were hell-bent. You were boasting in your resume. All your credentials were less than nothing before the living God. Filthy rags, but God saw you, and God had mercy on you. And mercy come calling, and mercy called you. He called you effectually. He took away that unbelieving heart, and he gave you a heart to believe him, to trust him. His spirit bears witness with your spirit. Yes, Father, I, I hear your word. I hear you calling. I'm going to respond. This is what you did for me. Jesus knows. He, he understands. He can deal with you gently. He can sympathize with your weakness. Therefore, let's go to him with our struggle. And what will you find there at that throne of grace? You know what you're going to find at the throne? The throne... The assumption is there's someone sitting on the throne, and there is. There's this priest king on the throne. 
and you're going to find this priest king. And what's so beautiful about this priest king is that he's able to deal gently with you because he himself has a scar here and a scar here, a scar here and a scar on his two feet. And the Bible says he's able to sympathize with you. He's able to give you mercy, to forgive you for all your failures this past week when you failed him. When you went to stand for him and you folded like a cheap tent and you didn't speak up when the Spirit prompted you to say that word in season to that unbeliever who's perishing and going to hell and you didn't do it, you grieve the Holy Spirit, you suppress the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I believe in the Holy Spirit. You got a pastor who believes in the Holy Spirit in this church. Because I believe in the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, it was often said of Spurgeon when he would come to the pulpit, you know what he'd do when he stepped up to the pulpit? He'd cry out, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because I know apart from the Holy Spirit, we're as dumb as rocks. We're ignorant and blind and wayward. Only the Spirit can give us eyes to see what the Spirit is saying. Only the Spirit can give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And He has in His Word. I'm wondering today, have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been born again today? Do you know God? Do you know Him? I'm not asking, do you know about him? Do you know God? John 17, 3, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one you sent. Not know about you, but know you. Do you know God? You want to know how you, if you know God? What I found out? Maybe you know him, but you're being inconsistent, and that happens. I do that all the time. But do you commune with God? Do you long after God? Not long after the things God gives, but God himself. That God is his own reward. He, he's the treasure in the field that you go home, once you find it, and you sell everything you have. And you go, I'm going to go get that field. i got to have that field. I don't care what it costs me. I want that field because I want him You can have silver, you can have gold, you can have heaven itself, but give me Jesus. You see, do you know him? You can know him. This is the work of God. John 6, 29, and I'm so far off away from my sermon right now, but listen to this. John 6, 29, the people have just been fed by bread because their stomachs were aching for bread. And Jesus multiplied the loaves and fed 5,000. And they're coming to him, and they're, oh, man, this dude's the Wonder Bread man. I'm going to continue to eat a free meal. You know I'm there. And then someone in the crowd asked him in John 6, 29, Jesus, what are the works we must do? What are the works of God? Right? You, that's a good question. Right? What do I have to do to know you and know your Father and, and have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? What must I do? And you know what Jesus says? Kathy knows. This is the work of God. That you believe on the one he has sent. 
Are you trusting Christ? Christ, the, the great high priest, are you trusting him? Not the knowledge about him, but are you trusting him? Come unto me, Jesus says. Right? I can't tell you how many doctrinal sermons I've heard that are just masterful. Masterful. Crossing T's, dotting I's, and taking prisoners. But there's no God in it. There's no God to be known in the sermon. Woe unto me if I preach that kind of sermon. We have a high priest who's drawn near, who, who's gentle, who can sympathize with us, who, who knows our struggle. We can go to him. Well, you don't know what I've done, you're saying. You're sitting there right now, you're saying, you don't know what I've, you don't know what I've put before my eyes this week. My heart's condemning me, even as you speak, Pastor. Oh, I don't know what you've done. But you know what? That's not the question. The question is, and the answer, I know what he's done. I know what God has done in Jesus Christ. That God can take the desert of your life. He can take the ashes and bring forth beauty. He can take the cul-de-sac of your life and bring forth something glorious through the holiness of his name. If you just come. All who come to me. Oh, you've walked with Christ 50 years. You're a teaching elder. You're a ruling elder at all saints. Come to Christ. No, they don't want me to start again. You can come to Christ afresh today and stop going through the motions, playing dress-up Christian. Aren't you tired of playing dress-up Christian? I've done it. I preach dress-up sermons. Come to Christ afresh today in your time of need and, and find mercy and grace because he has supplied so great a salvation. So he's appointed. He's able to deal gently. And we'll pick this up next time, but he mediates a, a better covenant with better blood. Because he's, he's able to be that go-between. We can't just boldly come into the throne of grace without mediation, without a high priest. right? You must come through the merits of a high priest, and Christ is this high priest. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the reality of knowing you in Jesus Christ, having your Holy Spirit, being baptized by your Holy Spirit having your spirit bearing witness with our spirit in the word of God, that we're children of God. Oh, Father, we pray and we would ask that you would be glorified in our lives, that you be glorified in this church, that we would make much of you, that we would value you, we would treasure you. Sure, we would be thankful and grateful for all the, the benefits of God and their glorious family, wives, children, friends, money, wealth, possessions. They're all good and are meritorious of giving thanks, but Lord, you're the treasure. Jesus Christ, you're the, the fairest of 10,000. You're the fairest one. You are the true treasure. You are our true portion. We pray and ask that we would draw near to you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.